0: I'm curious both of you about discussion with, for example, designing robot at an open-ended environment. And that's something I think biology how these, these creatures already figure out how to do that, to be adaptable to uncertain situations. So when it comes to the discussion between both of you, I'm curious how, it, for you as a computer scientist and computer science, how, how we can design system, living system that can work at an open-ended environment scenario like that. What are the challenges, what are the questions do you, both of you share and uh, consider maybe?
1: Yeah, I think that, that's a great question, how to, how to reconcile the open-ended environment. Um, so just for your, uh, for your listeners, maybe it's helpful to set up the, the, the Xenobots project where we use an evolutionary algorithm and run it in a supercomputer to design artificial biobots in a simulated environment, and then Mike's group tries to instantiate it in uh, biological tissues. So the immediate question we have to ask on the simulation side is what do we put in to the physics engine? What aspects of biology and physics are, are is living systems exploiting? How do they exploit it? And how might biobots exploit it to do what we want it to do? So, mm-hmm. turn over the floor to Mike and uh, about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, w- one of the important aspects for us is to understand the natural plasticity of the system itself. So the, one of the amazing things about the xenobots is that we take cells with a completely normal wild-type genome, meaning no genomic editing, we don't change the cells in any way, and we're finding that they, as a collective, are capable of doing uh, some really novel things that they otherwise normally don't do. And so for me, part of this, this, whole, this whole adventure is to figure out ways to computationally explore and predict the, the space of possible outcomes that we're normally not used to. So in, in mm-hmm. biology, and in, in particular in developmental biology, we are uh, often, um, this, this plasticity is masked by the reliability of development, right? The fact that a, a, frogs, a frog egg, if you don't do anything else to it, very reliably makes a tadpole. And so we, you sort of, so certainly students sort of get this feeling that, okay, this is, this is, this is what this machine is able to do. But the, what we're seeing now, and of course, people have seen aspects of this before with, in terms of epigenetics and, and other, uh, other types of experiments, that actually, no, these, these cells have uh, very uh, much um, greater capacities for doing things both collectively and singly, singly than what they normally do. And so how do we, uh, how do we learn to predict that? How do we learn to, to, to anticipate the kinds of plasticity that these cells will have? And so, so here, I think, is, is the grand challenge is to use the computational tools to do that.
1: And I think you know one of the one of the interesting one of the interesting things about Mike's work that we find so fascinating on the computational side is viewing the organism at the cellular level. That, in a way, the organism is made up of intelligent machines at the tissue level, the cellular level, the subcellular level. So, in many ways, for different parts of the xenobot or for different parts of the organism, the open-ended environment is the. The cellular environment itself is the neighboring cells and the signals that are coming oh in and being sent out. So when, we, when the evolutionary algorithm attempts to rearrange simulated biological tissue, then one hunk of biological tissue now has a new environment. It's up against a new piece of tissue that may be in the adult frog, the wild-type frog. It hasn't been in contact before. What do we know about that novel rearrangement? How do we simulate it? Do we put noise into the simulator? How do we ensure that that novel rearrangement will succeed if we try and build it in reality? Um, that's, that's really kind of an open, open-ended question for us at the moment.
0: Yeah, so on the biology side, you know, the the question of learning uh, is is fairly contentious because uh, some people uh, take take learning to be a very narrow sort of thing that advanced animals with brains do, and then there's the field of basal cognition, which sort of stretches it out into into a more, uh, I would say, evolutionarily uh, um, realistic view where learning shows up very early on in, in the in the web of life, and so. Um, the, the, the thing about, the, the interesting thing about learning is that you have to have a subject that learned something, right? And uh, you have to, when, when you have memories and, uh, and, and learning, it has to belong to some agent that you have to be able to describe. And this is very non-obvious because all, all cognitive agents are made of parts. So when you have something that learned, you have a bunch of it. So, so if, a, you know, if, a, if a rat has learned, has learned something, um, what you really have is a collection of cells. And and so let's say let's say the rat has learned that when it presses on a particular level lever it, with its foot it gets some you know some apple juice or something as a reward. This the cells that interact with the lever are not at all the cells that get the reward. And so the trick then is and so when you say the rat has learned something well what's the rat the rat is some collective of all of these cells that have figured out how to do credit assignment properly. And this of course is very familiar to, to, to machine learning and robotics folks, is that uh, we, we, the, the trick here is to, is to understand how all of the individual cells have bound together into a, into a larger agent that is the subject of rewards and punishments and things like this. Very non-obvious. This, this also works in, in individual cells. So single cells can learn and, and plants can learn and things without brains. So it's not just a story about brains and neurons. It's a story about how competent subunits can work together in a way that gives rise to a larger scale self, that it can be the owner of memories, the, 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 the center of preferences, the subject of past experiences, and so on, that are not um, individually true of any of the components. So that, that is one of the grand mysteries in biology. And so we're just, too, oh, just starting to really understand how that works in the global, um, in the global sense.
1: Yeah, I think you know th- there's a lot of uh, brand new questions I think for the AI community now that sort of biohybrid technologies are becoming possible. So um, you know, intelligent prosthetics, biohybrids. If you put artificial, you put technology together with living systems, the living system usually learns, right? It will learn to send the right signals to the prosthetic and and receive the signals appropriately. Again, because living systems are so good at learning, and as Mike said, have solved the credit assignment problem, they're they're more or less willing to work alongside technology and share the credit for collective action. But it's the the prosthetic itself, the artificial side, that still grapples with learning how to interpret the signals that are being sent from the living side of the of the biohybrid. So I think you know there's some brand new kind of machine learning problems you can ask at that that level. The, there's another way to connect technology with living systems, which is what Mike and I have been doing recently, where the learning is the evolutionary algorithm that's learning how to rearrange biological tissues into new forms and functions, and that's you know sort of a, that's quite different from biohybrids, where you're marrying hardware and and robotics with, you know, with part of an organism. So what are the questions there if you want an evolutionary algorithm to learn? what rearrangements work and what rearrangements don't work that again is sort of a brand new way of formulating you know a a question in ai and uh yeah lots to do
0: yeah so there are a number of uh, organisms
1: that are able to repair
0: themselves after damage and so, so axolotls, the the Mexican salamander, is one example where they will re, re, regenerate uh, their their legs, their their eyes, their jaws, portions of the brain, the heart, their spinal cord. Um, there are other models like the planarian flatworms that we work with, where pretty much every piece of the planarian can regrow the entire thing. So this this ability to um, and to regenerate is a, uh, is a, is a, is a special case of a, of a broader capacity, which is something we call anatomical homeostasis. So this is not just for adult regeneration. Embryonic development does the same thing. And so does remodeling, for example, in metamorphosis from a tadpole to a frog. The, the idea is, is pretty simple. You have this homeostatic loop that uh, continuously deforms and remodels the tissue. So the cells are moving around, they're migrating, they're differentiating, they're doing various things. Until the, the shape becomes roughly uh, equal to a target morphology, the thing that it's trying to, the shape that it's trying to achieve. And so it's basically an error minimization scheme that it's able to, in some uh, coarse-grained way, sense deviations from the correct pattern. And those deviations could be injury, they could be teratogens, they could be um, mutations, they could be all sorts of things. And so, and, and until that, that, uh, that error is reduced below an acceptable threshold, things will keep changing. So. For, for us, the real trick is uh, to understand not only how regeneration happens, and, and lots of people study the, the cellular mechanisms of, of turning this cell type into that cell type and so on, but actually the algorithms of how it fulfills the three steps of that homeostatic cycle, because it needs to do three things. It needs to uh, measure the current shape so that it can tell whether it's correct or not. So it has to, So the collective, and, and this is something very large. So no individual cell can measure something so big. It has to be a collective uh, computation. So, so the collective has to be able to measure the current shape. Then it has to be able to uh, remember what the correct shape is. So there's a kind of pattern memory here that where you can tell, is it right or is it wrong? And we've made some, uh, some, some progress in, in seeing how it stores those memories. And then it has to uh, issue, the, the, the collective has to issue commands to the lower level subunits, meaning the cells, to rearrange in a way that, that gets them closer to this final. So, so to us, this is, this is very much um, this kind of problem-solving cycle, really critical to find out how, how does it know when to stop? You know, very few people actually work on regeneration asking, how, how does it know when to stop? So when a salamander makes a correct arm and then everything stops... How does it know that's what a correct salamander arm looks like? I mean, that's a critical question. And so, so all, all of the three, sort of all of the aspects of that standard sort of test, operate, exit loop, has to be identified in biology, and we've just be, really just begun to do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm curious just, just based on what we what mentioned. Do you think in robotics we have to go for this question? In yeah, just answer them. It doesn't necessarily
1: go this level. I don't know about this level, but absolutely, a lot of what Mike just said has to be incorporated into robotics. We're we're moving in robotics into soft robotic spaces, into biohybrid robots. You know, there's been this assumption throughout the history of robotics that the body of the machine is fixed, and that that assumption, you know, has to be rolled back. You you cannot, in my opinion, you cannot make an adaptive machine that has a a completely fixed body plan it just it just doesn't work you're you're just too limited Um, but again if we're building you know depending on what soft robots we're building out of what materials we can't just borrow directly from biology right we couldn't make a, a huge flapping bird and get it off the ground we had to borrow the principles of heavier than air flight and adapt it to the materials from which it's built so i think uh, as usual in bio-inspired AI and artificial life, you know we're looking carefully at, at what Mike's group is is discovering and figuring out how to distill out of that the basic principles of homeostasis, adaptation, intelligent action, and then build that into whatever materials we're building our soft robots out. And and how to do that well or in a principled manner is again, you know, a completely open question. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, the funny yeah. thing is, it's, it's interesting that you say that uh, about, you know, giving up that assumption of, of a constant body. Uh, F- F- biological evolution gave this up long ago because, because the interesting thing about um, many, probably not all, but, but m- most creatures is that uh, they are incredibly tolerant to large scale changes of architecture. So, for example, um, you can make, uh, we've made tadpoles where the eyes are on the tail. And those instead of in the head, and those animals can see perfectly well. They 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 learn in visual assays, no problem. So so the brain can can immediately. um, Well, first of all, at the cellular scale, if you are a if you are a bunch of cells that are trying to make an eye, the fact that you're sitting next to a spinal cord and muscle as opposed to the the brain and then various other things, no problem. You'll still make an eye, and you'll still make an optic nerve that connects to something, the spinal cord nearby, perhaps. And and so so that that plasticity is there, and then the plasticity of behavior. So the brain has no trouble interpreting this, this, this weird uh, you know, sort of electrical signals from, from a new patch of itchy tissue on your tail as visual data and behaving appropriately. It's, yeah, it's, it handles that right off. And so what that, what that is probably signifying is that evolution discovered really early on that in order to be a, adaptively successful and, um, and evolvable, you have to have uh, that kind of plasticity that, that you have to assume that your body can change. And that things don't necessarily go where you can't assume that everything is where it needs to be, and that you can still um, all the different parts compete and cooperate within the body to, uh, to to result in some sort of adaptive function. So that plasticity, I think, biology uh, sort of assumes right off the bat that you don't know where anything is, and and that mm-hmm. you still have to you know you still have to get your business done even if even if things are surprising and, and not where you thought they were.
1: Mm-hmm.